Hello and welcome to Fitness Unfiltered episode, I believe, 56. This is a bit of a strange one. This is our first Mikeless episode. So sadly, yeah, Mike cannot make it today, but he's off doing some other very important stuff. And it's uh, Mr. Jamie Alderton's box jump of Everest, the equivalent of the height of Everest. Obviously, he's not box jumping over Everest. That would just be silly. But he's raising or attempting to raise quite a lot of money for a children's charity. So please do check that out if you get the opportunity. But yeah, we're very sad because, yeah, Mike is like a staple. But we've all missed it. Kind of, kind of part of the podcast, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you're obviously here, though. How are you? I am here. I'm fine. My back's so bad. But I have been watching the box jump, which has been pretty cool. So I wake up in the morning. In the, no, I wake up in the middle of the night for my usual nightly pee. And I logged in, and that was exciting. So I think I was like the only person watching. But amazing that it's like soon. I, basically, I couldn't even stay up all night, let alone box jump all night. Yeah. Um, so quite insane, and I mean you've done similar, haven't you? Not not quite, but um, uh, a twenty-four yeah, hour, yeah. And I did look at that, and I I looked at it this morning, and I saw the twelve-hour mark, and I just thought, ah, twelve hours. I think actually six, fifteen or sixteen hours in is when I hit a real low, but twelve hours, and you you get people which are trying to be really helpful, and they go halfway, and you're at that point where you're on the floor, and you think. I've got to do that again. Like, there's nothing left. But um, someone else... Should we, should we get on to our guest? Well, no, I was going to say, because someone else who can tell us a little bit about endurance events as well is our very special guest, and we are very fortunate. And we've been meaning to get Rachel Hobbs on for a very, very, very long time, because this is going to sound like a strange intro. I've known Rachel probably since 2012 and 2013, and I believe, Rachel, we met in um, swimwear. Yes, we did actually. I forgot about that. Oh, that was a, like a lifetime ago, wasn't it? I know. That's a weird intro, but welcome anyway. <laughs> Thank How you so you? much for inviting me. I'm amazing. Thank you. Excellent. Because, I mean, from the work that I've seen, obviously you've, you've led a really interesting life athletically, but also professionally. Um, but for, in case the listeners hadn't heard anything about you and they've been living under a rock, Rachel, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, of course. So uh, professionally, I guess um, I would say my title, I work as a specialist dietitian. Um, so I specialise in um, the preven- prevention and treatment of disordered eating and diagnosed eating disorders, um, as well as in sports performance nutrition. Um, I take quite like a comprehensive, I'd say, approach to working with individuals. So we look at, um, at physical training and mindset and talking therapy, as well as sort of dietetic interventions. Um, I'm really, really lucky in my work. Like every day is different. Um, I started out in the industry 11 years ago as a personal trainer, and I still do one day a week personal training. Um then as a performance nutrition, um, I'm the lead dietitian at um, the Elite Army Hub. So we have about 30 boxes um, over in Aldershot, about 12 shooters, and then we've got some individual athletes over there as well. Um, I work with a couple of professional netball teams um, and for a um, company called TAS, which stands for the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, where we sit just below the English Institute of Sport and support athletes reach their full potential. And then the other side of my work um, is in dysfunctional eating, 
So I work in quite a specialist area um, within the NHS where we work with individuals that have been diagnosed with SEED, which stands for Severe and Enduring Eating Disorders. Um, and they oh, also have a co And they also have a... Um, yeah, so it basically means that someone's um, been diagnosed with an eating disorder for seven years or more. And then we work with um, specifically individuals that have been diagnosed with SEED plus a co-occurring condition, which could be autism, um, OCD, depression, anxiety. Um, okay, so very specialist then. So that is quite specialist work. But then in my private work, I've got a private clinic where I work with um, individuals with a wide range of, of dysfunctional eating patterns. Mm, fascinating can you tell us a little bit more about your athletic career as well please because I, I feel like I gave the intro of how we met and you know, I didn't <laughs> expand on that so please expand on everything you've done because there's lots you've done but start there so the listeners don't think I'm as strange as I already am <laughs> absolutely there's nothing wrong with a with a little bit of madness um so I came into um sports performance I guess in my youth I was a gymnast and a dancer and then went into doing um bikini bodybuilding in 2000 and yeah it must have been 12 13 um and I have a huge amount of respect for everyone that does it but for me it just wasn't for me um and I realised I wanted more of a performance-based goal and was scouted to be on um, the GB powerlifting team. Um, so I think it was 2014-15. Um, I competed for Team GB in powerlifting, won the European Championships and um, broke the British squat and deadlift record for sub-52 category. Wow. Um, yeah, and then I went on just for, just for charity um, a couple of years ago to do um, an Ironman triathlon. Wow, okay. so, yeah, casually, I'll just tick all the athletic boxes, it's totally fine, oh, that's, you, that's fascinating. Do you know what's amazing about that intro, there's so many questions and topics I want you to cover, like even just then I'm like, oh my god, what about, uh, um, you know a lot of people are, are kind of like, oh well you can't train for endurance and strength, that's ridiculous, like you won't get the yeah. opposing adaptations and what yeah. you think about that, and then also what's so interesting is that and maybe I'm completely naive and wrong to this, but I see sort of sports performance nutrition and nutrition or help for people with eating disorders as like almost opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I would expect sports performance to be like, eat this, this and this, do it because it's going to make like, you know, quote unquote, or make the boat go faster. It's going to help your performance. Whereas obviously you take a completely different approach or am I completely wrong about that? Like is there crossover between what you do with sports performance and what you do with your eating disorder clients or patients? Well, I think the crossover comes in that a lot of people that have dysfunctional eating patterns are also heavily involved in sport. And a lot of athletes, especially, um, so I work with a lot of weight-making athletes, so boxers, um, or athletes involved in anything that sort of involves um, the way that aesthetics, the way we look. Um, there's always going to be some some crossover there, yeah. Yeah, because it's um, interesting, you said like with make weight sports, it's some of their eating behaviours, which, which anyone else would describe as disordered, not to say they've got eating disorders, but it's almost become normalised, like it's a acceptable thing for people to drastically diet in a very short span for like an eight-week boxing camp, for example, and then just binge continuously afterwards. Um, and then obviously go through the process again, and that, that process of 
putting a substantial amount of weight on top and then having to lose that and you know from what you said Rachel as well yo-yo dieting is similar to what we can see in gen, some gen pop clients sometimes yeah absolutely and I think I mean we are putting more parameters around the safety in these weight making sports so one of the things that I request from all my athletes is that they stay within their five percent um, of their category weight all year round. So we aren't getting these massive highs and lows um, in body weight regulation because then there's, you know, it's not just the physical side effects of that. It is the emotional and psychological side effects um, of extreme <clears throat> restriction and, and the impact that it has on an athlete's body image. Yeah, um, and I guess this is that, well, we see it in some sports where it's actually life-threatening. I mean, you look at MMA now, they haven't got the regulations that boxing has, but um, there, are, there are fighters that are quite literally killing themselves to make weight. Um, uh, are you aware of Chris Cyborg? No, I'm She's not a female familiar with it. She, 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 oh. There's basically not a weight class for her in um, the MMA world, so she has to drop an average of 34 pounds per fight. Wow. Yeah, and there's there's videos circulating. I mean, people can check this out. There's videos circulating on her on YouTube, and she's in tears. You know, she's lying in hot baths trying to get as much water off as possible. But these guys forget they've actually got to get in and perform. Yeah, and absolutely. It's not a case of just standing on the set scales and making weight, and the, um... or standing on the stage and walking up and down. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's that's something else we we would definitely want to explore. Um, during... It is interesting that though. I think uh, one of the reasons I found dieting just to look good so easy is because I came from a sports performance background and it's so much harder to lose weight while maintaining performance than it is just to lose body fat when you don't you know yeah you still want to lift the same weight in the gym but who really cares if you don't like it just matters how you look and not that you actually have the energy to do anything it's, it's, it's a strange it's a strange sport because it's strange for many reasons let's be honest <laughs> but it's um, it's strange because it's the only sport where it's it's just widely accepted that I'm going to get more rubbish performance wise um, to look a certain way because no other sport that I can think of that you'd accept that you get weaker you physically feel like you're worse um, <laughs> your strength goes down and that's just an accepted norm of as a byproduct of making weight is it's fascinating but it's actually um if you don't mind expanding on it rachel is i've seen a few posts of yours which expand on addiction addictive behaviors and certain compulsions and personality traits which is what we we really wanted to explore today because i know there's links with perfectionism anxiety preoccupation with body image and food and and things like, like that how do they interlink and is there any associated with eating disorders and is there a big distinction between eating disordered and disordered eating? Yes, amazing. So um, so I did my uh, second postgrad in addiction and CBT just because the more uh, clients and patients I was, was working with from a dietetic point of view, um, the more I was sort of seeing these links. And I think the first thing we need to say is, I think we mentioned sort of food addiction is that when we're talking about um, behavioural addictions um, or compulsions, I prefer to use the term compulsions and, and bonds um, because I think a lot of people have negative connotation with, with the terminology of addiction, but I'll use those three terms interchangeably. Um, is that when we're talking about behaviours, we, we change like a food addiction to an eating or feeding addiction um, and use that. Because if we're having a look in sort of uh, the diagnostic manual, the only behavioural addiction um, that is in there at the moment is gambling. And that's relatively new. 
um, in there and there's been some sort of different opinions on, on whether we should call that an addiction or not. Um, so as I'm talking, I don't want anyone to think that um, we're diagnosing these things as addictions yet. Um, it's still sort of a process, but I'll just use that term. Um, so the first thing I would say is when we're talking about any type of um, addiction, it basically starts in in any behaviour that, that we find a temporary like pleasure or relief in. Um, and that's, you know, and that's part of being human and our existence is that we do like to um, it, like eat palatable foods. And, and when I'm talking about palatable foods that, you know, it's going to be different from each other. So Dan, you'll you're enjoy different foods and Emma who will enjoy different foods than myself. But generally there'll be higher fat, higher sugar foods. Um, and that might be a, a pleasurable behaviour behavior for us or it could be gambling or it could be exercising or watching porn or taking drugs and it's it's natural at times to use these behaviors as coping mechanisms for you know when we're feeling a bit down or or if we're sort of experiencing some pain and because they provide joy um but the the concern starts to come is 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 when it becomes the only coping mechanism that we have to manage pain or a trauma um, and and then we have a look at, at, at what the components of, of these addictions or addictive behaviours might be. So if we're starting to, for example, crave a certain behaviour, whether it's eating um, or whether it's exercising, and then it provides us like pleasure and relief in the short term, uh, but then in the long term it's having a negative impact on us. Um, for example... If we know for health reasons that it would be beneficial for us to lose weight, but we continue, continually um, lose control around food and we, we continue to gain weight despite not wanting to, despite it having negative impacts on our health, um, and we aren't able to, to stop from that binge eating behaviour, and then when we don't do it, we get withdrawal symptoms... And it starts to impair sort of on our healthy functioning. Um, that's when we start to, to be concerned about these sort of um, compulsion or, or trauma bonds that we've linked between uncomfortable emotions um, and these behaviours. And that might not just be binge eating. It could be restriction from eating. It could be exercising. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the reality is anything anything that where we know that it's not good for us but we can't stop ourselves. That's the same in any of these addiction-type behaviours. Right, fascinating. And obviously there's a part of identifying that there's a certain criteria they have to meet, but with your work that you do with people, is I guess a certain amount of that's how to deal with that psychologically. Is it encouraging people how to deal with these emotions or find other coping strategies? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're using like eating or restricting food or exercising or chewing and spitting food um, to avoid pain, then we can form that bond with it. So a lot of people will say like their eating disorder is their friend. Um, However, we've got to realise that it's not the food or whether it's the drugs or the exercise that's, that's the problem. Otherwise, we'd all be addicted to food because we all eat and we'd all be addicted to exercise because we all train. It's, it's, it's the issue with the, the addiction is that it's not the external activity, but it's our like internal relationship to it. So that mm. bond to the behavior is almost like the secondary problem. 
that it's covering up like the primary problem. So it, it sounds strange to say, uh, but like the eating disorder or an addiction is it serves a purpose in people's lives. You know, it gives comfort, it distracts from pain, it soothes stress. And if we look at any individual that is struggling with these things, um, it does, it, we always find that it does serve a valid purpose. And it's not, you know, it's not effectively serving that purpose, but, um, the, the, it, you know, it always seems to, to arise out of an unresolved life problem that at that time point, the inv- individual has no positive solution for. Um, mm. So people come into my office and, and want a diet plan to solve 10 years of dysfunctional eating. Um, and, and the reality is rarely does an eating disorder have anything to do with food. Mm, that's, that's fascinating. So, yeah, that's so interesting. And actually just so reassures me that, I don't know, that Dan, you'll have the same if someone comes to you and you think actually you're probably beyond my scope and you refer out. Mm. and it's definitely like you know they're like oh I just need like a meal plan or some kind of structure and it's definitely not what they need yeah and just realizing like again reiterating how complex it is and that actually really there's no way that someone who isn't trained in that field could could sort of deal with or would know where to start like I wouldn't know yeah because well I think for most fitness professionals the go-to is you know often let's do what's necessary to keep the client happy and that there's many that would just give them what they ask for. Whereas, you know, as you said, I certainly have some that come to me and I, I, I don't obviously say at the time, um, but the last thing that person needs is another food plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just, you know, if you are a personal trainer or you've done an online nutrition qualification, it's the simple fact is that you're just not educated enough to be working with something as complex as eating disorders. I work with an MDT team. I, you know, I work with a psychiatrist and psychologist as well. Um, and, you know, and often it comes from such a good place as a personal trainer or someone's own personal recovery journey that they want to be able to help um, these individuals but but anyone with an eating disorder is is vulnerable and they are at greater risk so if as a personal trainer you you do want to help then go to university and study for four five six seven years to be a gp or a dietitian or a psychologist or psychiatrist but if that's not possible then refer out yeah yeah i think that that's sound advice and you know we're not the only fitness industry isn't the only industry many industries do but it seems to be fitness industry are becoming reputable for operating or trying to operate outside of their scope so yeah with with things like this it's it from what i can gather as well it's a whole support network it's not just one individual you know as you said it's working with the gps perhaps working with the psychologist it's not just working one-on-one a lot of the time but that's quite interesting so in terms of identifying personality traits do you have your own separate personal criteria when it comes to you know identifying perfectionism traits and kind of obsessive compulsive traits when you when you begin to work with someone I mean generally you'll look for sort of emotional and behavioral traits and 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 physical traits so that perfectionism does um align with a lot of individuals that have um uh, symptoms of anorexia nervosa um but then you'd also you know anyone that is within the dieting world um becomes a primary concern for developing an eating disorder um like a preoccupation with weight and food and counting calories which probably sounds quite similar to a lot of um people within the fitness world as well 
So there are yeah, obviously crossovers. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, because that's actually what I, you know something I wanted to identify and talk a bit more from both to both of you today, because um, it's almost become normalised. You know, is okay. We all appreciate academy tracking. It does have its role as a valuable tool, perhaps from an educative point of view. But I have certainly met people where they're, you know, they brag about their three-year MyFitnessPal tracking record, and I just tracking isn't the answer you know if we, if we have to rely on an app that, that's my opinion um, yeah. it can be a valuable tool but, but when we're being ruled by numbers and we're you know staying up till midnight every night preparing our food that's that's not normal but it's become normalized yeah no I, I totally agree and I think tools like my fitness file and social media they can be amazing educational tools but it comes to the point of, of why why we're using them. You know, if we're using, say, for example, a phone app to track our food, and if we don't have it, it's it's um, creating withdrawal symptoms. And then when we do have it, it creates this pleasure and, and relief and, um, and it's preventing us from living a normalised life. Then these are all symptoms of addiction again. Yeah, and control. Yeah, um, and I often find that in individuals that I come across that, you know, you may talk to them about other aspects of their life which they're not particularly in control of, and this this one thing they are in control of is a control variable for them. So, yes, it's, yeah. you know, I find it here yeah, fascinating. Um, so, rather than saying to someone if they're feeling, uh, if they do feel like they need to control their diet, it's often it's often more about just asking, you know, questions about like why do you feel what what in your life do you feel out of control of. You know, how has this mm. happened? Why do you feel out of power? Because, again, it's often not to do with the food. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with signposting, Rachel, yes. I mean, if you had any advice for fitness professionals, because I think probably a lot of this goes undiagnosed and unreported. There are, again, like Emma, I'm sure you find like people you speak to and you think perhaps a new diet and training plan isn't what they need. But where would you... Where would you? Where, where would someone start if they were seeking help, or how, how would they recognise signs in themselves without seeing someone? I think so. Signs in yourself um, would be from a, just from an eating disorder point of view. If you're suddenly starting to um, eliminate certain foods from your diet or food groups, and uh, perhaps toying with the idea of things like becoming vegan, but not really for like moral reasons or if you're experiencing mood swings or very low self-worth and self-esteem if you're doing a lot of mirror checking in the mirror and have a lot of concerns with with sort of body size and shape and this sort of continued desire to to change the body shape um I would start by always speak to your your GP um there's a beat website and also a website for the National um, Eating Disorder Association um maybe I could send you the links yeah, that'd be great because we can include those in the notes. If only we had a GP on the show. Yeah. Experiences as well. And then I don't think we know one actually. <laughs> there's the healthcare professions website as well, which will have all registered um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and dietitians. But most most GPs are now linked with a um, NHS provided CBT service as well, and we know that okay. um, the best studied outpatient therapy for adult eating disorders is CBT. And could you just tell us what CBT is? Yes. What, what so the process would of, be and things? Yeah, so CBT involves um, that our, our thoughts sort of dictate our feelings and our behaviours, and it's trying to restructure those thoughts um, and not 
um, always engage with those unhelpful thoughts. So um, it, how we would, for example, if, if our thought pattern was that um, today, for example, we're feeling fat um, and therefore then our behaviour for that would be to restrict intake, it's catching that negative thought and not engaging with it because one thing that we would say is that when we are in a, a a physically vulnerable place so in the depths of an eating disorder we're not able to accurately um listen believe the thoughts that we say to ourselves that's do you know what i feel like everyone could probably benefit from that and i'm i think everyone's their own worst critic can't they and to some extent i think we do like even without an eating disorder maybe say things like that to ourselves or have this negative self-talk all the time so I think probably most people could benefit from some of those principles at least like I'm always trying to tell my clients to speak to themselves like they would speak to their best friend or their daughter if they're a mother or something like you would never say some of the things that you say to yourself to someone else so why are you so horrible to yourself and I think think oh sorry sorry Rachel carry on no you carry on so I think it all comes from um, this place of like almost like low self-worth. Like we do live in like a disconnected, like fat phobic society that, that sometimes does fail to meet like just our basic human needs for connection. And it profits off our, our low self-worth and the belief that changing our bodies will heal this emotional trauma. Mm. And I think a lot of, you know a lot of our issues with food and our bodies just comes from a place of of low self-worth and not being connected to ourselves yeah well we're um, we're more connected together uh, to, to each other digitally but more physically i guess disconnected than ever and i find that people are lonelier than ever and i think mm. if you do work in an industry where many people are self-employed and a lot of this stuff is normalized and your go-to from I guess from an addiction point of view is to you know scroll through Instagram in an effort to make yourself feel better it doesn't necessarily feel that way um so that's definitely one of my my mental health care tick boxes I think is a bit of human connection every day because it's quite easy just to you know sit in front of your laptop or speak to very few people these days because you can you can keep in contact with people online whatsapp messages now it's um you can go days without speaking to anyone unless you go out of your way to yeah well we say we sort of say in the addiction world that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection oh, I, like that. I so that's an interesting thing obviously usually if someone is addicted so say someone is addicted to drugs or alcohol what usually happens is they stop drinking at all stop taking well let's leave drugs out because maybe that's illegal anyway but they don't drink at all and obviously you can't not eat at all so that's an interesting concept as well and I think a lot of people maybe they're not you know people are claiming that maybe they're addicted to sugar so they just Mm. completely cut out sugar and it's trying to explain that that's not the answer that the answer would be to be able you know the goal the end goal would be to be able to have some something that's sweet with sugar enjoy it and not feel the need to then binge after or to overeat that food after. Absolutely, because and sugar's, sugar was never the issue. Sugar's yeah. the secondary problem. Mm. That's the coping. That's the coping mechanism. And how much of that is, in your opinion, is acceptable? So I guess it's, it's something that arguably everyone has done or still does, is people do turn to comfort with food. Is it, is it when that becomes the only primary way to, to cope for that individual? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's absolutely normality and, you know, healthy. it's healthy sometimes that, you know, if you've gone through a relationship breakup and you reach for a tub of ice cream, you know, there's some normality within that. Um, but when it becomes your only coping mechanism and you're getting these negative side effects that it's impacting healthy functioning, if you're, you know, it's the same with exercise. If you, you're realising that you're missing out on social occasions and you're you know it's affecting family relationships um then that's when we have to think oh actually why why are we utilizing this what is the real real thing that's going on here because mm. I, I guess um again we reference the social media it is something that's become normalized and I, I guess you can relate as well rachel from your you know your competitive background but it's especially amongst that circle but that circle and their social media platforms is well most normal and i put normal in air quotations because is anyone actually normal <laughs> go to for their fitness advice they're comparing themselves to people that arguably are dealing with their own stuff anyway yeah that is an interesting one so i find with or i find i've noticed i think with competitors i don't know if you guys will agree that a lot of the time so it can go one of two ways either someone's maybe previously had an eating disorder and then has found bodybuilding or physique competitions and it's actually helped them because they want to grow muscle they want to fuel their workouts and they found something big well in my eyes I guess basically something they want to work towards and something that they need to eat for to do well in Mm -hmm. so I guess in some ways that's another coping mechanism but then on the other side you find people that maybe do have underlying eating disorders and then they surround themselves with people that are basically going to encourage them to diet because that is the goal, is to be as lean as possible on stage. Yeah, so I don't know what you find that sometimes, like, Rachel, I don't know what your opinion is, like, does sometimes, does, does it sometimes help? Or do you see more as it's just like another mask for... It's almost an enabling sport, isn't it? It's if you have got those character traits and, you know, you have got all those control variables in your life, it is a sport that encourages that. Yeah, and I think that um, it comes down to, like, always the reason, why Why am I doing it? Is this, you know, as humans, we need to get a sense of mastery in our lives. And I always say to, to people that we need to have full lives. If all we have in our lives, if our training and our eating, that's where we get our self-worth from. You know, if we have other areas in our lives, then... then our lives are fuller and, and we have more to our lives than just our training and, and our and our food intake. And I think that at, at some points, you know, these coping mechanisms are survival tools. If they don't, if we don't go to these coping mechanisms, you know, what is the other alternative? Because we're not ready to deal with the pain that they're hiding. Um, but I do think there are dangers within, within any world um, that is based on taking people to very low levels of, of body fat because we know in anorexia nervosa that the brain changes, um, the brain shrinks, and until we get someone to a, to sort of a biologically acceptable weight, we wouldn't even we wouldn't really start talking therapy, which makes it incredibly difficult. Um, so anything that is not you know it comes down to why someone wants to stand on stage. What is the underlying factor? And if it's low self worth, you're probably not going to find self worth standing in a bikini on stage. Probably going to end up with exactly the opposite. <laughs> well, I always I always find the irony of it is is especially with people that have had a you know a background of protect potentially being overweight and I can definitely relate to this myself for my standing on stage you're arguably standing in the most judgmental spotlight ever Mm. so um, you're never necessarily going to find answers now 
I mean, and, I- and I think it's interesting as well that sometimes we look up to models or bikini athletes and think, <clears throat> sorry, and think they have the perfect physique and they must be so happy and they take so many selfies that they must be so like that they love the way they look. And from my experience sort of behind the scenes of that, like it's complete opposite. Like you're always looking for approval. Probably, I don't know, like I just find that they probably have the worst body image issues. Well, it's validation from strangers. And it'd be interesting to get your thoughts, Rachel. Um, Social media, is that itself, is that another addiction? That, you know, that little dopamine release from the likes and the comments and uh, the accolade of being up there. Yeah, I think, again, everything comes down to why, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? Anything that provides us joy or temporary relief is, it has a potential for us to form that trauma bond with. You know, it's, it's, it, Instagram is, you know, it could be an incredibly useful tool, but it's also one of the easiest things that we can become um, obsessed with because it's so easily accessible and we always have our phone on us all the time. But ultimately we are responsible for how we use these things you know there's the the i think the modern iphones now have um like screen time and that we can turn these things off if we know that we're at risk because there is a we know now in terms of things like addiction or compulsions and eating disorders there's a genetic element to it um so some of us are more predisposed but that alone does not um, mean that we're going to get an eating disorder or have an addiction. It's uh, environment, you know, we say uh, sort of like biology holds the, the gun, but, adi- uh, but the environment pulls the trigger. So if we are responsible for our environment and how we use these things, um, then we are less likely to, to, to have problems with them. I think you bring up two really good points. And I, and I guess on the other end of the spectrum, people use that. Obviously, there's a genetic component to being overweight as well. And people see that as, oh, well, if I've got that, you know, there's nothing I can do. It's my genetics. So I can't change them. And same with environment. It's like, yeah, we live in a, an obesogenic environment. Nothing I can do. Not true at all. Like, you can change your environment. And like you say, you might be more predisposed to being overweight or having an eating disorder. But it doesn't mean that that has to be your outcome or that you can't be in control of that. And one thing that I keep thinking while you're speaking is that all this comes down to being like quite self-aware of yourself or asking yourself questions that maybe you don't want to ask yourself, like why, why do you always want to exercise or why do you always want to binge eat? Like, and those are questions that I guess we try, like we avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think one thing that we do need to definitely bring forwards is that not we can't all afford to go to talking therapy or things like that but we all do need like a safe place to um explore ourselves because in our society we're just you know we're all so busy that's what we everyone is promoted to see success as so one thing I say to to my clients is get yourself a journal um and journal it every evening, reflect on your day, what are you grateful for? And then each week I send them a journal prompt and that becomes a safe space to explore these things that we just don't explore in, in daily life. Yeah, I think people get caught up in the hustle and bustle, don't they? A lot of people would probably argue they haven't got time for that, I think. Yeah, I'm definitely one. I never used to self-reflect at all. And now I make myself, because I think Dan, you'll be the same, but one of the the things about working with my clients is that I'll send them a check-in and actually 
yes, of course, I reply, and maybe we need to make some changes. But the check-in's more for them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a it's a bit of a, like, journal prompt almost. Yeah, it's it's like, for them. how has your week been? What have you done? What could you do better next week? What are you grateful for? What are the things that you're proud of that you've done? And I always make myself do that as well when I send that out. Amazing. So that's all my prompt. I think that's great because I think otherwise we can get just sucked into the like the hustle and um in five years time we're in exactly the same place as we were and life's just passed us by Mm. so stopping to think about like what what's the bigger picture what's the what's the goal yeah I'd be really interested because you have missed off an important another important job that you do Rachel is your (laughs) mum Yes. How do you, what do you pass on, or what do you try to instill onto onto your son? If you don't mind me asking, if that isn't too personal to ask. No, not no, not at all. Um, so Finley is now eleven. I had him when I was eighteen, so I was um, a young mum. Um, so I just you know instill to him that that we that I think the main things is that is about connection, and I do think you know a connection to um, ourselves, a connection to others. Um, a connection to like I've not really spoken about it but almost like to spirituality as well like one thing that I speak about with my clients is almost that um, have you heard the term of um, like your body is your horse and you're the rider Uh, sometimes sometimes if I'm working with like young younger females and things like that it works better with like we use it a unicorn um but basically (laughs) we are so much people don't really like the term spirituality so it's not something I talk about uh, maybe in those in in those terms but almost like it separates our essence of who we are with with um our body so it brings more into our lives and that, that you know, we do need to look after our horse or our body. We need to feed it well. We need to make sure it exercises and rests because it takes us, it takes us through this wild journey, but we are the rider of it. So we are more than just what our body is. Yeah. So, yeah, just, I, they, I guess those are the, the things that I install into him and just, yeah. Yeah, it's just a scary role, you know, my daughter's three, but... I make reference to it often, is we, if you don't mind me saying, we're all of a generation that existed before social media. Mm. So some of, kind of, some of that was instilled from a younger age. I know as we get older, Dan, we lose some of that. I find I had Bebo. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, I felt many a social pressure with my top five friends. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, they will never experience that, you know. What, the stuff that terrifies us is their everyday norm. And I don't think anyone is properly equipped to deal with that especially young impressionable minds because um as adults you know i can get caught scrolling through instagram feeling a bit rubbish about myself it terrifies me what um you know young people will be going through yeah absolutely and i think um so we use the terminology like stabilizing factors so that even if we are so we you know even if we are genetically predisposed to, to feeling the you know these things that if we have these stabilizing factors which generally I would say around sort of stress management like encouraging meditation encouraging spending time in nature um, taking part in like mindful movement like be educated on um, things like nutrition there's like certain non-negotiables 
um, I would suggest most of my clients have, and like creating this full life and challenging those negative beliefs and having well, that what social What are your support. non-negotiables? Oh, so if we're talking about like nutrition non-negotiables, it's mm-hmm. just, just the basics. So are you eating five different types of fruit and vegetables each day? Are you getting a source of whole grain? grain? Are you eating oily fish twice a week? You know, are you having a source of probiotic? Like nothing massive because the reality is I would rather everyone does everything consistently well than anything, you know, extreme. Mm-hmm. Dan, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, sorry, my screen paused for a moment. I do apologise. But also, this is our first one where we haven't actually done it as a face-to-face almost. So oh, we yes, can't sorry, my um... visual cues, can we? So I apologise for the we're talking about <laughs> each other. Yeah. Um, so how much of this does cross over? Because I know you wanted to know a little bit more about this, Em, as well. How much of this yeah. does cross over with your, your athletic clients? And, you know, is it as much of an issue? I or is would it just such a, say... a normalised issue? It's not an issue, if that makes sense. It's just an accepted norm. I mean, in weight-making sport, the reality is um, we we are now encouraging if someone is having issues with their weight or um, if they're participating in um, behaviours that are not healthy, so that, that could be anything from fasting, it could be excessive exercise to burn calories, it could be purging, self-induced vomiting, use of laxatives, then they we would then deem them at too high risk to to train and we take them out about. Um unfortunately the world of sport is that uh sometimes, you know, if an athlete doesn't have a bout, they will not be on the team and therefore they may, might not be so forthcoming that they're participating in these behaviours. It's still a subject that elicits a huge amount of shame. But if I was to put a number on it, I would say in weight-making athletes, probably 60% are partaking in disordered eating behaviours. Wow, okay, so quite a large number. Yeah, yeah, and it's so interesting you mentioned shame there because I think there's a lot of sort of almost... Well, yeah, that exact, that people wouldn't come forward and say they've got a problem because they feel, like, shame about it. But it's, I think, how you've been speaking about it and that it's actually, you know, it's not about the food and it's often an underlying issue or there's an underlying reason why they're doing the behaviours that they're doing. That kind of takes the shame away from it because, I don't know, just, like, in my head it does anyway. It's, you know, it's an underlying issue that, and actually it's a hugely brave thing to do to say, do you know what, I have a problem and I'd like to get some help. And I think that's a massive step for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that that's the hardest step as well, just to admit, actually, this is not how I want to live my life. Um, and the reality is, there, are, you know, being a person is hard sometimes. And sometimes we need to we need to use these these coping mechanisms to make life feel more manageable until a point in which actually they're having negative behaviours on our lives. You know, and, and it is about treating ourselves with a bit of self-compassion. Like, we, mm. you know, we're imperfect and, 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 and there are ways that we can learn to, to deal with these feelings in healthier ways than turning to food or restriction or whatever choice we have. Mm. I think self-compassion and, and certainly the mention of shame is something that's a little bit more spoken about now. But I still, you know, as a man, I do find men find that stuff harder to speak about. Is that... Do you think a lot goes unreported and undiagnosed, especially when it comes to men? Yeah, and I think like males are underrepresented in eating disorder statistics. Excuse me, um, 
because the stigma of having the condition which you know is it is primarily associated with white teenage females um it often it often prevents other people from getting help and getting diagnosed and it, it, you know in males they it, the symptoms might present in different ways but eating disorders you know they happen in all genders ages races ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses um but they are more diagnosed in females because that's who we associate them with. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And then also, so I think one of the issues, I guess, with uh, being diagnosed with an eating disorder is that often people would go to their doctor or GP and they're not underweight, so they don't maybe get the support that they would need. Like, I don't know if you could cover, like, the definition of maybe anorexia, because uh, I know that, well, I've heard stories of people sort of going to try and get help and then because they're not of a certain weight, they're not deemed at like at a high risk. And then I don't know if they're on a longer waiting list or they're just not given maybe the support that they would have been given had they been underweight or at a lower BMI. And unfortunately that that does happen really commonly. And it's really, um, it's really sad because we know that if the sooner someone is starting treatment for an eating disorder, the more chance that they will have for full recovery. Um, I mean, it has changed recently, the diagnostic criteria, but still a lot of um, GPs have to work with their funding um, and, and they have to give their funding to, I guess, people that are physically the most vulnerable. Um, but just quickly going through them, we've got binge eating disorder, which is, a, which is the, the recently... Um, recognized as a disorder but it's actually the most common um, and this is just characterized by like repeated episodes of binge eating which is um, a larger amount of food than you deem as normal and a, a feeling of, of being out of control when you're eating um, often accompanied afterwards by feeling quite guilty um, this is normally you would normally see this and expect to see this in individuals with um, a larger body size um, and 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 Again, CBT is, is, is what we would use to, to treat that disorder to start with. Um, and then we have bulimia nervosa, which is um, very similar to binge eating disorder, um, but compensatory, compensatory behaviours are involved with this. So after the binge, there would be a behaviour performed designed to try and um, reduce those calories. So it could be fasting or excessive exercise, um, self-induced vomiting or use of laxatives. Um, and then we've got anorexia nervosa, which um, is, it is the eating disorder that receives the most um, attention, but is the least common. And we also know now that atypical anorexia, we don't, it's, an individual doesn't have to be underweight, which does mean that there is more um, access now for, for different types of support. But this is characterised by um, a restriction of food intake and that would lead to generally a lower than accepted body weight, a fear of weight gain, a disturbed view of of body as well, um, which is probably one that we would see quite often, all those symptoms within individuals in the fitness industry. Um, and then the other one I probably touch on is, which actually hasn't been um, recognised in the diagnostic manual yet, is, is orthorexia nervosa, which is where an individual believes that they're eating um a healthy diet but that becomes quite obsessive um and they would really adhere to this this healthy eating theory despite having like negative consequences on their social or or health functioning 
Oh, yeah, that's pretty common. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think even I'm thinking oh, when you mentioned binge eating, I'm thinking about the the unconscious bias that people have as well, similar to you know someone that's in a larger body may go to a doctor's with a headache, and I'm using an extreme example here, and the doctor naturally assumes it's weight related. If an athletic looking person goes to the doctor to seek help with their binge eating it might be an assumption that it's something else because someone who physically looks fit couldn't possibly have that problem. I think potentially a lot gets missed there as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think like a lot of people who are maybe in a smaller body that do suffer with binge eating feel that they're not, you know, they're not ill enough to get help in the same way that um, someone that is having all the symptoms of anorexia nervosa, but they're not biologically underweight they might deem themselves not as ill as someone that is underweight so they don't go and get help whereas actually so we call this like category like offset so we call it other specified feeding and eating disorders and it's sort of like it's great that it's been made like a category because it means that help is available for people that don't fit into the other three categories um but it's really important to emphasize that if if you know I don't really like labeling individuals anyway um, but generally it's for funding purposes to, for, for where you direct the, the services to. But, you know, there is there is help there for people that don't fit into binge eating or bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, I'm conscious of time as well because we, we, I feel like we could do a whole other podcast as well. There's so much to talk <laughs> yeah, about there. I really want to get into, like, the endurance athlete or even just like the more, because I don't think, I think something we haven't touched on really on Fitness Unfiltered yet is sports performance, um, nutrition. Yeah, but hybrid aspect. I don't think like 10 minutes is probably enough time <laughs> to get into that. So maybe we'll have to have you back if you would mind one time. Sometime. I would love to, definitely. Yeah. Rachel has witnessed a highly professional setup here, people. So obviously she wants to come back. Um, so just as a, as a take-home before, I've, I've pre-warned you of the task this week that we're going to give everyone. Have you had a think about that? Oh, do you know? No, I didn't. I literally thought about it when, as you've said it then, but something's popped into my head, but I'm not sure if it's... If it's... I'll go with it now then. Go with it, yeah. So I was just going to say, um, message in how many burpees you can do in a minute. Oh! Okay. Yeah. That's really like a good... task I was going yeah, that's yeah. Emma's the taskmaster. She would go with something like that. Perfect, and they have to film it. I mean, it's worth okay. filming. <laughs> yeah, it might be about, a bit too short. What about Just... a one-legged burpee? <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, why not? Or, what I quite like is a clap kick burpee. <laughs> so you like do a burpee and then you come up and like clap under your leg, like oh, a like a tuck jump. And then we won't ah. have any listeners left after the task. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they just refuse to listen to it from now on. Uh, did anyone see my Wimbledon burpee? No. So you have to throw, like, a, well, it's more like squash, but you throw a ball at the wall. A ball at the wall, yeah. And then you do a burpee and you have to catch the ball when it comes back. I'm going to try like, this. It's yeah, the best. I won't film my first attempt, though. I do think it might be. A, a <laughs> oh, please do, then. <laughs> I'll give it a go. Um, 
yeah, can we can we do that? Can we arrange another one and perhaps where we can talk about GP stuff with the, you know that guy Mike we normally have on? <laughs> no, I want to talk about endurance fueling. Yeah, let's talk about that. The and hybrid aspect. You know, the hybrid athlete. I like that. Yeah, the hybrid aspects really fascinate me, and that's that's what I really had to embrace when I did my twenty four hour task. So not that mine compares to Jamie's, but um, yeah, having never done anything like that, strength hybrid endurance type podcast yeah well being going from doing like high level powerlifting to doing a triathlon an ironman triathlon like that's the complete opposite ends of the spectrum so when are they going to change this to iron women as well are you referred to as an iron woman um i don't know i don't yeah i reckon i reckon so Come on, guys, we're chasing... It's probably gender-free yeah. now. This is 2019. Like, you can't say man or woman. Just call it it's iron. A, it's an, an iron, iron person. Iron event. It's just an iron event. Yeah. Amazing. So, for the sake of our listeners as well, Rachel, if anyone wants to find out a little bit more about you, where can they go? Um. So... My website is rachelannhobbs.com and all over social media, I'm just under Rachel Ann Hobbs. And Rachel has a book that we haven't even mentioned. So that is the, that's a Fit Club journal that is literally 12 weeks, just a really um, gentle introduction to, to consistently health-promoting behaviours and introducing them, working with like nutrition, mindset, lifestyle and, um, and exercise. Amazing. So you can find out more about that on Rachel's site, I imagine. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening, tuning in. Please do subscribe, like, tell your friends, tell other people. That helps us get our message out there. My mum actually does listen. Does she? (laughs) Yeah. My mum doesn't. Oh. Come on, Mama ESG. I know. Come on, Frog. What's your mum's name? Professor Story. That's not your mum's name. <laughs> That's why I call her. We don't do full names. Oh, okay. We don't do first names. Well, I'd hope you don't call your mum by her first name. <laughs> <laughs> that would be That strange. would be weird as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I insist she calls me ESG Fitness at all times. <laughs> thank you so much again, Rachel. We really appreciate your time. And thank you for your patience as well, because... Um, that it's weird enough recording at different ends of the country but not being able to see someone is stranger so i apologize if you felt we spoke over you oh no not at all i'll, I'll try and get um and my max on the way out so i'll try and get a new one for next time oh, okay lovely i look forward to it and thank you so much for your time again and yeah like subscribe share i think this is a really good podcast to share because i'm sure that many many people will gain a lot from yeah. this one I think listeners, um, whether you're in the fitness industry or not, will benefit from this one. So thank you. We will finish in our usual abrupt style. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.